0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
1: You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
2: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. What do we have in store for listeners this week? Well, we shall strike a balance between culture and fun. Somehow I believe, Ken, that the
3: balance shall tip in the favor of culture. That's Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson from the 2008 dark comedy In Bruges. The feature-directing debut of acclaimed
2: playwright-turned-filmmaker Martin McDonough. Ahead on this fun, culture-filled edition of Film Spotting, my conversation with McDonough about his latest dark comedy, Seven Psychopaths, starring Colin Farrell, Sam Rockwell, and Christopher Walken. Don't forget a shih tzu named Bonnie. The inspiration for this week's Film Spotting
3: Top 5, Movie Pets. Filmspotting is brought to you by hover.com. Domain name, registration,
2: and management that's simple. For 10% off your new domain, go to filmspotting.hover.com and enter show code FilmSPotting. That's filmspotting.hover.com and use code FilmSPotting. You're listening to FilmSpotting.
3: Will we add insult to injury or be old yeller's salvation? We'll share our top five movie pets later in the show. We'll also recommend two new films currently in theaters and reveal the lineup
2: for our upcoming black exploitation marathon. But first, an interview with the writer-director of Seven Psychopaths.
0: Hi, is this your dog? Oh my God! So oh, proud. I have to pay you. Thank you are so much. Are you, much. you serious? how's <laughs> mm-hmm. everything in the dog kidnapping business? Mm-hmm. Get a new dog. Why were you walking him, Charisse? I always loved Bonnie like he was my own child. One, I do not want that image in my head. Two, could you go get my dog back? Hey, what the hell happened? Some punks jumped us. Oh, yeah. Said they were looking for a little shih tzu. <laughs> then some other punk killed those punks. <laughs> it's their blood. <laughs>
3: this
1: puke you want to go to the bathroom clean some of the blood and the puke off (sighs) here
2: seven psychopaths is the second film from martin mcdonough the revered irish playwright known for the pillow man the lieutenant of Inishmore, and the lonesome west among others here he's re-teamed with in bruges star and fellow irishman colin farrell farrell plays a screenwriter not so coincidentally named marty whose current project also called Seven Psychopaths, takes him down some dangerous turns, thanks largely to the involvement of his deranged friend and aspiring co-screenwriter Billy, played by Sam Rockwell. Billy and his partner Hans, played by Christopher Walken, make the mistake of kidnapping the beloved dog of Woody Harrelson's gangster Charlie, who's determined to get his precious Bonnie back no matter how much blood must be shed in the process. And this being a Martin McDonough production, you can certainly count on a lot of blood. Josh, as ridiculous as it is to insert myself into any discussion of McDonough's creative process, I can actually relate on a very small, very insignificant scale, to the struggle of his protagonist here. During my one glorious year as an MFA film student, my final project began with just a title, and an appropriate one for this interview, The Melancholy of a Lost Dog, which I stole, pretentiously, (laughs) from a line of dialogue in an Antonioni film. I loved it so much, I was determined to come up with the characters and the storyline to match it. (laughs) <laughs> Probably not the best way to do it, which helps explain why I only spent one year in film school. Please tell me that film spotting is a front to just raise funds for
3: the it final is. production of yeah, The I'm expand
2: it of A Lost Dog. Expand it to a feature. When I talked with McDonough a few weeks ago here in Chicago, I was curious if he started this film the same way that I did mine and Colin Farrell does here. I think so, yeah, to a to degree
4: Colin Farrell's character is playing a writer who has just the title seven psychopaths and nothing nothing else to really go on and i think i was kind of in the same place i had maybe one of the stories that appear in the film the one about the quaker psychopath so i had the idea of just a writer with a title who doesn't know where to go but doesn't want it the film as a whole to be about violence and crazies Mm and uh, to so at the same time knowing that that type of film is exciting and interesting, too. So it was, uh, I guess, playing around with uh, those twin elements to want to do a film that adheres to the Hollywood tropes of psychopath gun films and to do something that's completely the opposite, too, to try and struggle for something, as Colin's character says, about that's about peace and love mm-hmm. and love pacifism and nonviolence, and to see if those two weren't completely
2: diametrically opposed, to see if you can have both elements going through one Mm -hmm. film. Well, I definitely want to focus on that a little bit, but I want to go first to this notion I had watching the film initially when I saw what kind of film it was going to be in terms of the meta layers of it and the, the screenwriter working on this film. My initial instinct was that this was going to be something similar to like a Stardust Memories with Woody Allen, where he's sort of acknowledging his critics in the film, the people who all say, you know, that he uh, doesn't make movies like he used to. He doesn't make funny movies anymore. And there are elements in here that I know certainly come up when people talk about your work, things Mm -hmm. like the offensive language and attitudes and overabundance of violence that is still somehow life-affirming and and what you said, glorifying or at least humanizing hitmen and gangster-type characters. But then I read that you actually had the script done before you even shot In Bruges, so certainly it wasn't a comment on people's comments in relation to In Bruges, but how consciously were you being self-referential in terms of responding to how people respond to your work and how you respond to your work? Um, It wasn't ever really so much about that.
4: I kind of don't take too much notice of the way people <laughs> respond to my work to be honest but I think I did I mean if you call the character by your own name mm-hmm. and you're dealing in a medium in a way that, that I have you know um, guys with guns and that kind of shtick then I guess you're going to get those questions thrown up but I the reactions to my stuff both the plays and the films I, I've had no issue with really hmm. I mean that they've strangely been taken on pretty much as as in the way that they were intended. They do have violence in them, but I don't think they're all about that. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I I, I can usually see um, there's some kind of moral streak running through most of them. And so, I mean, most of the criticism of my stuff has been pretty spot on, really.
2: (laughs) Well, following up with that, then when you have characters referencing things like, the conventional Hollywood need for a cathartic shootout at the end or weak parts for women. Are you are you commenting? Are you looking to comment with this film on those Hollywood tropes and those cliches? Or is it more about you and your own instincts possibly to go down those paths as well at times?
4: Uh, Both, both. I think I'm criticizing Hollywood, Hollywood storytelling and I'm criticizing my own. There are 2 or 3 women characters in this and they're probably not as strong as they ought to be. Mm-hmm. So then like you get to the middle of a script and you realize that and there's some there has to be some way to get out of jail having done that and we kind of play around with that Christopher Walken has a line dealing with that specifically, saying all of the women characters in your film are terrible to the writer character. And then, you should and be able to true. construct a sentence. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But I, I, in my earlier plays, I mean, I like writing strong women characters. I haven't for the last couple of films. But in my earlier theater work, like The Beauty Queen of Linan and uh, The Cripple of Inishman, there were uh, stronger women, and, uh, and I like that. And um, actually, my next film script, it's already written. It's got a very strong uh, female hmm. lead. So, yes, I mean, I am kind of criticizing myself as I go along. But also Hollywood, because there's the whole line and a through line that you can never hurt the animals in a movie. Right. But no one cares about what happens to the women. And I thought that was an interesting one to explore. Three weeks I haven't seen you. That's the way you talk to me? I've been busy, baby.
1: I've been busy trying to help you out, if you must know. What
4: are you talking about?
0: Well... You haven't i have billy Billy, you've got to give it back give it back oh my god oh. Give, it,
1: give it back it's kidnapped oh uh, uh, There's a kidnapped dog you don't just give back a kidnapped dog that feeds the entire object of the kidnapping they didn't just give patty Hurst back did they no this dog is my patty hearse except i'm gonna keep it in a closet and make it rob a bank no, i'm gonna hold on to it I'm so a decent human being gives me a bunch of money.
0: the guy's a psychopath, Billy
1: Well, did you ever ask yourself what you're doing scoring a psychopath in the first place?
0: Scoring two psychopaths is what the question is
1: why who's the second? Oh, who me
2: We're talking with Martin McDonough, the writer director of In Bruges and his latest film Seven Psychopaths. You mentioned this battle that's going on on screen between kind of this this lightness and darkness the the disturbing nature of some of the violence and some of the activities we see, but also. This, this desire to be hopeful and, and somewhat life-affirming. And as I was watching the film, I, I really was wrestling with this notion of whether or not you, Martin McDonough, the, the writer-director of Seven Psychopaths, not potentially the surrogate on screen we see in Colin Farrell, but whether you were using this as a very, very clever narrative device to explore these, or whether we were really seeing you during the writing process of this film sort of open your brain up and, and let this battle that's that's happening. It was sort of happening organically. Were you writing this internal battle you were having between that desire to to share these really dark, disturbing images, but then also be funny and be hopeful? I think both of those elements are very true, but I
4: don't think it's as much of a of a struggle as it might appear in the film. Hmm. Um, I think Colin's character is is really torn up about it, and. I don't think I'm in that place. I, I'm interested in exploring both of those angles. But I don't feel, I don't think I feel guilt or worry about hmm. the the violence aspect. Because I think, I, th- to me, I'm coming from a place of some kind of morality, however screwed or oddball it is. And it's quite a screwed, oddball film. Um, it, I know my heart's in, in the right place, even if no one else does. Right. But, but but I think it and especially Christopher Walken's character in the film, he almost uh, single-handedly carries the moral uh, through-line and the moral weight of what I was trying to explore with
2: this. Hmm. I have to admit I'm a neophyte when it comes to your plays. So indulge me for a second, though. I read, right after seeing Seven Psychopaths, I read Lieutenant Vinishmore. And I couldn't help but notice some crossover Uh in terms of certain words and motifs (laughs) that pop up. You had to pick that one. (laughs) I had to. You know, there's a mention. We'll start with something really trivial. There's a mention of hippies. There's characters standing tall in the face of certain death. A character suggesting they should do it like in the movies. A discussion of shooting people or animals in the eyes comes up, certainly. And most significantly, (laughs) though, both works are driven by psychopathic characters trying to get their pets back. Yes. Here it's a dog, there it's a cat. And there's a lot of blood shed in both over something that's arguably so trivial. And as you mentioned, there is great irony in films in the way characters are so cavalier with human life, but they're so serious about pets. So how important to you is exploring that irony? Because it seems to be something fundamental to your work in the work I'm familiar with, anyway.
4: Yeah, I mean, there certainly is in both those plays. I think Lieutenant is much more po- political one than this is directly. It's it's kind of about um, uh, what had been going on in Ireland for a number of years. But it was, yes, exploring the idea of uh, the glorification of violence in mm-hmm. some ways and the sentimentality of it very much so. And in this, it, it's less heavy in this, I think. But it does allow... Me and Colin Farrell's character to explore questions of violence in films and psychopaths in films, too. And, you know, does every movie have to have a guy with a gun in his hand? you know, every film poster I see has that. My one has that, too. And as much as you belong to that,
2: you, I think it's good to question it mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, and cool. I think the film does. Well, certainly in defense of, of writers and artists who use violence, it would seem to be on the surface to be a, a clear problem solver. It is a resolver in a lot of ways. You tend, whether it's actually with guns and death or just a, a physical battle, you tend to have a clear winner and a loser. Someone is left standing and someone is on the ground. But I think through your work, it definitely comes through that your point seems to be, yes, but it's a lot more complicated than that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very much so. And I, I, I haven't found the um, the solution yet. I don't know if it's better to have films or plays that have no violence, I don't think that's going to work, but I think there should be, the discussion should be out there. Yeah. But also I, I like it in, because in, this isn't a heavy film, it's kind of in some ways quite a broad comedy, but, and a, and a conventional Hollywood one at that, but I think it's even more interesting to explore those issues within that context.
2: Do you think when you said you're not sure that not having violence would work, do you mean for audiences to accept it or you personally, that's not something that you think you could really go down that path.
4: Now that I think about it, my next one skirts around issues of violence, but doesn't have any violence in it, plot-wise or otherwise. So maybe I'm finally
2: growing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking to Martin McDonough. He's the writer-director of the new film Seven Psychopaths. It stars Sam Rockwell, Colin Farrell, and Christopher Walken. It's Uh, Another thing to say this movie's about, and it's easy to say it, is obviously about storytelling. We've talked about some of those elements, and there are a lot of many narratives and narrative threads introduced. But my favorite scene in the film is the one with Tom Waits. (laughs) the extended scene where he tells his story. We meet this psychopathic character, and he sits down with Colin Farrell. And obviously part of it is the writing's so good and his delivery is so good. But really what I loved about it was it seemed to crystallize the whole film for me because at first as he starts telling his story, Colin Farrell could not care less. He would Mm. like to be anywhere but in that room with this crazy guy, and he goes off to make tea, and he's like, hey, just tell your story and we'll get out of here. But then something interesting happens. He starts telling the story and it's dark and twisted and really interesting and all of a sudden Colin Farrell is hooked we see him in the other room stop what he's doing start listening he really wants to know what's the middle of the story gonna be what's the end of this story gonna be mm. and this is the same experience we obviously have when we go to a theater or we sit down in a movie theater and and watch a film so was the idea of exploring how we consume stories and why we consume stories something you are trying to explore here
4: yes yes and uh I had a, a, another play a few years ago called The Pillar Man, which uh, dealt with similar territory: the the need for storytelling and stories, the joy of them, the danger of being spun a yarn. Mm-hmm. It's something that I like. I like doing. I mean, I think when I first started writing plays, most of the things I was seeing in London didn't really have stories. They were quite political and had an agenda, it seemed, um, and nothing really happened. And I was kind of the books and the films especially I was watching at the time always had stories and it felt like certainly in the theater I, I was watching that was that had been lost so I, I, I kind of like the idea of an audience wondering what's going to happen next mm-hmm. or being surprised at every you know every 10 minutes and sort of bringing them into the storytelling process yes yes having them be not culpable in what was going on. But yeah, maybe, you know, to question exactly what it was they're laughing at or being horrified by or or their allegiances to characters. And where Um, they want it to go and why they want it to go that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a fun... I mean, it's not really something that's heavy in my mind. It's fun for an audience. I mean, it's more palpable, I guess, in theater because you can see them leaning in and, and being surprised or shocked or or laughing even, it's, it's a fun thing to explore.
2: Yeah. Story, storytelling is fun. Yeah, it absolutely is. This is your second feature film as we commented on after In Bruges, and I think it's fair to say that that was a film that was more theatrical and this is more cinematic than In Bruges was just in terms of locations and mm. some of the visual style. So how would Seven Psychopaths be different? What wouldn't you have been able to do or what wouldn't you have understood about cinema if you hadn't had the experience of making In Bruges? To this film. Um, yeah, that, that's a good question because I had this, both
4: scripts sort of ready to go at the time just before I uh, made In Bruges, but I knew this one had a, a, a scope cinematically that I didn't know enough about. It had tones that went from broad... Broad comedy to dark, and and Bruges had that in some ways too, but it was kind of a lot more centred in a sad story, really. Mm-hmm. You know, the story of Colin's character who's done a horrific thing and feels guilty about it. All of the humour came from some uh, him trying to get away from that, but it was the whole thing was wrapped around that sadness. This was almost like a uh, more of a scattergun approach to both storytelling and filmmaking. Also, it had so many flashbacks and stories within stories, and the scope of it, we go from an urban, although in some ways unrecognizable, L.A. backdrop to a completely desert-like Joshua Tree right. place. So that those ideas of catching that kind of cinema, I, I didn't really have uh, a grip on. Maybe I still don't. But I knew I didn't have the wherewithal at the time of making in Bruges to make this. But having made Bruges... But also simple things like being able to work with actors. In Bruges was a very simple story and something that I was used to. It's basically three characters Mm -hmm. and one set, that being Bruges. This had like 10 or 12 very different characters and very different ways of storytelling. But once I had finished Bruges,
2: I realized it wasn't as scary as I I thought (laughs) before making it. I want to talk about the cast a little bit because they're really so phenomenal here, and specifically the lead, Colin Farrell. He's an actor that I've liked in some roles. He's an actor I frankly haven't liked in some roles, but I've loved him in both of your films. And I guess I want to know what it is about your sensibility and his sensibility that merges so well. But specifically, I want to go back to maybe that moment. Can you pinpoint a moment when this relationship started, whether it was off screen or on screen in rehearsals working on the film? Was there a moment where you saw something in him that clicked and you recognized that this is going to get on well? We're going to work well together.
4: Well, we met maybe a year or two before the whole idea of Bruges was even muted, and I just liked him a lot as a person. And he seemed like a very normal guy and not starry at all. And then we met and talked about the script. But I think it was probably the first couple of days of rehearsal for uh, In Bruges that I realized that he was just a a normal, hardworking actor who wanted to discover who the character was and, mm-hmm. and wasn't hiding anything about that. He wasn't. A movie star. He was just an actor exploring, and I didn't re- think I would have anything to to offer up to him or 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 be of help. But then I realized all the things I had realized in the rehearsal rooms for the plays over a bunch of years before making Bruges. That I know, you know, why each character is saying the things they're mm-hmm. they're saying, and I I know how to um, get that across. I guess to an actor. But it's been very. I I, I haven't really. Directed Colin very much in either of these films. <laughs> We've kind of tried to, you know, make sure the script was good and that we were both comfortable with where the character was, and then to get out of the way. Also, I think probably you know working in one's own accent always is quite helpful. Maybe too. so. Yeah. yeah,
2: you've definitely you definitely found some common ground there that works. You've mm. worked with Sam Rockwell and Christopher Walken previously with your play of the Handing in Spokane, and. I've always loved Sam Rockwell on screen. He actually may capture the spirit of what we were talking about in terms of that, the competing psyche of dark and light better than any actor on screen because yeah. he's so charismatic and so smart and seems harmless a lot of times, but there's always <laughs> that flicker of danger behind just about every character he plays. Is that something that you respond to in him? Yeah, and and this especially taps into uh, all of that.
4: You know, it's a, it's a character who uh, is, I think, hilariously... Uh, funny uh but can go to any place yeah. at, at any given moment and he was that way in, in in the play that we did as was christopher christopher walken is someone who can be hysterically funny and terrifying uh on a dime he can they can both spin on that and and it's so it's interesting having a couple of guys like that in one film because you re- like even writing the characters i didn't know where they were going to take me from hmm. minute to minute and having those two actors on board helped with that eventually.
0: Put your hands up. No. What? I said no. Why not? I don't want to. But I've got a gun. I don't care. This doesn't make any sense. Too bad.
2: I mean, Walken's obviously a brilliant screen actor, and I'm sure he's great on the stage as well, but he's one mm-hmm. of those guys who's so known for what he can do with words and his intonation and his inflection. But the fact is, watching him in this film, I really became aware of the fact that he may be better than anyone on screen when it comes to silent moments. Mm. Just what he can do with quiet moments, the exchange between him and Woody Harrelson's character. We haven't talked about him yet, and he's Mm. fantastic in this film as well. But there's a great exchange where they're sitting right across from each other, and the moments where he doesn't say anything are what say the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'd strangely,
4: just for that scene, we talked about Harold Pinter and... Pinter's pauses in theater, and uh, Chris had done a, a a film that Pinter wrote years ago, and so that was, put in that scene, one of the things we were trying to get at, how long can you hold a pause, and how menacing a pause can be, but yeah, Chris is, always, I think I said before that Christopher is sort of the moral center of this film, he's not just the, the crazy out there guy, he's no. the, there's an oddness about both the character and Chris in a way, but there's a gentleness and i think it really does come through in those quiet moments
2: i'm always curious to ask directors but especially people who come from a theatrical background about rehearsal and especially when you have a great cast like this is it is it different between stage and film your approach to rehearsal, are you a big fan of lots of rehearsal or do you want it to be more spontaneous and go with it? Um, I'm still a big fan of rehearsal. We had three weeks in Bruges and we
4: had about two and a half weeks on this. I think it's just a great place to answer all the questions that might be there for an actor uh, about character, about each individual line. You know, sometimes a yes can mean a no and unless you've had time to talk that out with an actor you're going to be wasting a lot of time on on set. Um, so it's like the cheapest, smartest way to approach a film for me. And I don't think it kills the spontaneity at all. I think it actually helps it because everyone's grounded in their characters. And so everything they say is true to that. So if they come up with a, an ad lib or, or, you know, extra stuff, it's born out of a truth that you've established in the rehearsal
2: room. So uh, I couldn't be without it. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're talking with writer-director Martin McDonough about his new film, Seven Psychopaths. And I I did want to ask you about the fact that this is obviously a film set in Los Angeles, very much an L.A. film. Your last play, Behandling in Spokane, was your first U.S. set play. And there's an interesting point in this movie where Sam Rockwell is going on about what the Irish have and what different different countries bring to their their heritage. And I, I believe Colin Farrell says, what about Americans? What do we have? Hmm. What what are we kind of born with that we can't shake? Is that something, the American experience, is that something you're transitioning into caring about or really wanting to explore? Yes, but I think I've always cared about it and thought about it.
4: Hmm. You know, as kids in Europe, pretty much nine out of ten films we see is American and nine out of ten TV shows, too. But then even in my Irish stuff, I kind of explore those questions of nationalism, but also question them you know Um, Mm -hmm. i don't think there's necessarily any major truths i think nationalities are are, or nationalisms are are very are are generalization and especially the picture you get of a country from outside the country isn't especially helpful i've always liked american stories and storytelling and books and movies and and people you know we're pretty much the same the world
2: over I know that Terrence Malick and Sam Peckinpah are influences on you cinematically. Is there anyone you look to or any films you look to specifically with regard to the meta nature of the story in terms of movies, about movies, about the filmmaking process? Not so much, no. I think it that
4: kind of just surprised me hmm. and grew up of its own accord. Yeah. Let me think. Sullivan's Travels by Preston Sturge is a pretty a yeah. pretty cool one. Absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, it's out and out funny, but actually it's trying to deal with
2: some serious It has serious a message issues. for yeah. sure. Yeah, so maybe maybe that one. Yeah. I can definitely see that and I do love how you sprinkle in some movie references there with uh Billy Bickle, Travis Bickle, Kijlowski, Yeah. actually in the name yeah. of one of the characters. I'm sure there are a few others I'm missing. The
4: Night of the Hunter, I think there's a few moments in Okay.
2: There too. Well, I want to close, put you on the spot a little bit as we're talking about Peck and Paw and Malik and influences. I, I'm sure you were aware of the Sight and Sound list that came out recently, the top yeah. ten films of the decade. I don't know if you actually did you submit a list. Yeah, I yeah. believe you did. Um, and and not having refreshed my memory on what you said there, we went through this process recently on our show, really trying to define for us what we think of as the ten most essential movies. And obviously, it's very hard because you appreciate film on so many different levels. But yeah. is there is there one film for you if you had to pick the one that is most essential to you? Is there one that stands out? It's probably the same
4: for you, too. It changes, mm-hmm. you know, on a weekly, if not a daily basis. And for me, it's usually the one or the two that has affected my idea of cinema a bit. I think Badlands is kind of hard to beat for me. It's, it, it was one of the first that showed me the combination of both great acting, great writing, great directing, and music, and getting across some kind of poetic mingling of all those things that became its own bigger thing mm. uh so Birdland's on a more visceral bigger storytelling though i guess seven samurais a, a, a pretty cool one which too. has a connection to this film certainly yeah in yeah. terms of the psychopaths i ripped that one off too um and but the for, and taxi driver for me is, is mm. pretty amazing you know just the detail of that kind of characterization and the uh, it's also more than the sum of its parts i think
2: yeah Martin McDonough, his new film as writer-director is Seven Psychopaths. Thanks so much for your time. Best of luck with it. Thanks a lot.
0: An eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. No, it doesn't. There'll be one guy left with one eye. How's the last blind guy going to take out the eye of the last guy left?
2: Seven Psychopaths is out now in wide release. And again, my thanks to Martin McDonough. I have to admit, Josh, I was a little intimidated going into the interview because his work is so intense, I figured he would bring that to the table as well, but he was really an easy guy to talk with. Yeah, he seemed like he was laid
3: back, the opposite of some of the scenes that are in his films, or at least in the second film. I've yet to catch up with it, actually. I've only seen In Bruges, which is... Quite a bit of fun. I love hearing these filmmakers' influences when they talk about it, especially ones that surprise you. Seven Samurai makes sense mm-hmm. as he explains, obviously, but Badlands seems so different in terms of its poeticism. Sure. I guess McDonough seems to have a verbal poeticism uh compared to what Badlands has. It's much more visual. And taxi driver is one I never would have put with him. I don't hmm. know
2: why, but kind of surprising. Since the interview, I do want to note that I've read one more Martin McDonough play. I did read The Pillow Man, and it is amazing. I really would love to see a stage production of it someday. And that story about storytelling aspect that we discussed in relation to Seven Psychopaths is definitely a huge part of that play as well. Well, all you need for Massacre Theater are two
3: psychopaths. I think we fit the bill. Plus, how do you follow up an in-depth exploration of contemporary Iranian cinema? Exploitation, of course. Damn right. Adam and I announced the titles for our next movie marathon. Stay with us.
2: So, Josh, I've come up with a great idea. I think it's a great idea for a new podcast. Oh, okay. And as soon as I find two capable hosts somewhere in the world, this podcast may actually come to fruition. I like it so much that I wanted to secure the domain name for it. So I had it, stop anyone else from taking it, getting it before I got there. And I was able to do that because of our new sponsor. It's always great with Audible on board and Squarespace to have... New sponsors on film spotting and hover.com is one of our new partners. They provide simple, clean domain and email management tools. I went there, I had this domain locked up in about five minutes. Really easy process, very affordable. They offer whois privacy so you know that your personal information isn't publicly available. They've got unlimited domain forwarding, and they also offer 25 top-level domains. They even have a new no-hold policy for customer service calls. So if you need some kind of support and you call them Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, you're guaranteed to get a live person. They'll never put you on hold. So I can personally recommend Hover.com and the services they offer. And who knows, maybe at some point people will actually hear this new podcast.
3: Is this a weekly dissection of your student film, The Melancholy of a Lost Dog? (laughs) Because that would be a great idea. Oh, It is not. Get a domain name for that one, too. I think we could get a whole year's worth of podcasts out of that, though. I believe it. Visit Hover today at filmspotting.hover.com. Use offer code filmspotting and get 10% off. That's filmspotting.hover.com. And we do thank Hover for their support.
0: You're going to do a $20 million Star Wars ripoff. You need somebody who's a somebody to put their name on it. Somebody respectable. With credits. Who you can trust with classified information. We'll produce a fake movie.
2: For free. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. That's a scene from Ben Affleck's new film, Argo, a movie we plan to discuss next week on the show. We're also going to have a poll question a little bit later in this segment that asks you to rate some contemporary actors-turned-directors. But right now it's time for Massacre Theatre. This is where we perform a scene from a screenplay, badly, and you get a chance at winning a prize. Last week, we massacred this scene. What
0: happened? She walked into the street and got hit by a car. You know what? I'm almost sure she did it on purpose. How do you know? Because everything Beth does comes from within, from some dark impulse. I guess that's what makes her so thrilling to watch. So dangerous.
1: Even perfect at times. But also so damn destructive.
2: That's Vincent Cassell as Thomas. And Natalie Portman as Nina from 2010's Black Swan, directed by Darren Aronofsky, screenplay by Mark Heyman, Andres Hines, and John McLaughlin. There was a clear tie-in to last week's top
3: five list, Doppelgangers. Kevin McLenathan from Carol Stream, Illinois, wrote in to explain, Given that the top five list was all about Doppelgangers, it seems fitting that Black Swan would be the Massacre theater selection. There are also some similarities between Black Swan and Looper, in that both pairs of protagonists are irreconcilably in opposition to one another, yet are also inextricably linked. As identical elements on opposite sides of an existential equation, they can only cancel each other
2: out. I think you need a PhD just to process what Kevin wrote there. I'm not sure I completely follow, but it is true that we were going for that clear connection between Black Swan and the fact that not only is she playing two different swan princesses, but you do have the Mila Kunis character, who also seems to represent another side, another part of Natalie Portman's character. James Nutter from Lebanon, Kentucky, wrote in to discuss our performances, Josh. He said, I would like to say that although Josh's Count Chocula like (laughs) performance as Toma was the standout of the segment, anytime Adam breaks out that wispy, scared little girl voice, it cracks me up. But it is true. That's kind of my go-to girl voice, the, but the scared little girl voice. But you hear it there in the scene. That's pretty much Natalie Portman's yeah, whole performance I, in I'll that admit, film is good. that scared little girl. We also got this note from Daniel Gutierrez in Lodi, California. Oh Lord, I'm stuck in Lodi again. He described your take as super chocolatey profoundness.
3: <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> What's odd is I was thinking Russia. I don't know why I was thinking Russia, but Casal is French.
2: And I ended up somewhere in the middle in Transylvania with Count Chocula. I (laughs) I don't know how that happened. Well, if you want to hear that top five and that brilliant rendition of Massacre Theater or the review of Looper, you can find it at filmspotting.net or do a search in iTunes. And with that, Josh, reach into the Film Spotting Hat and pick out this week's winner. The winner is from right here in Chicago, Aaron Rodgers. Congratulations, Aaron. Email feedback at filmspotting.net for your free six-month subscription to fandor.com, where great movies live. (laughs)
0: Scene, man,
4: memorizing. What? Look, man, undercover cops got to be
0: ballin' random, right? To do this job, you got to be a great actor. You got to be naturalistic. You got to be naturalistic as hell.
2: We move on now to this week's edition of Masquer Theatre, presented by Fandor.com, a site to discover, explore, and share independent, foreign, and classic cinema. More information at Fandor.com/slash/filmspotting. Fandor.com, where great movies live.
3: Help support the show by signing up now. Film Spotting listeners get the first 30 days free.
2: What do we say about this scene? How do we warn listeners about what we're about to perform for them? I don't think we can warn them. Yeah. This is going to be a Massacre Theater first for me. We it can is say that. a first for you. There's a tradition of this, though, going back a little bit here on Film Spotting. And, Josh, there's been some very memorable Massacre Theater since you joined the show, some very painful Frankly, performances. Yes, it's true. I think this one is going to take the cake. Let's go into it thinking positively, okay? Okay. I'm thinking positive <laughs> here, Josh. Let's see if it works. You're going to start it off, so I'm going to give you the action. And again, I don't think we need to say anything else. The connection to this week's show should be pretty obvious. Yeah. So with that, Josh, I'm going to give you the action. And action. You know, at some point, a good friend of ours said, you know, you've got all these
3: great songs that you do about your terriers. And, and, and you're... Do something with them because you're celebrities now. We never Uh, thought of it. We were just doing it for fun,
2: just for the love of terriers. But thinking, yeah, yes, why not? There's something to be said for that. Two, three, four. Backyard,
0: Backyard, front yard, yard, or the park. Play play with it till it it gets dark. Take them home after after a while. They they chew it up terrier style. Bow -wow. wow. Delish! Bow Wow! Some dish!
2: And scene. (laughs) We're going platinum with that one. I know it. That hurt my ears, and there are terriers whose ears are ringing all over Chicago right now, <laughs> They're <Josh>. howling. <laughs> oh, man. You know what film we just destroyed, Left for Dead? Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Tuesday, October 16th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries
3: and announced oh, wow. on next week's show. Keep it going. To get official massacre theater rules, visit filmspotting.net.
0: He's a tramp. But they love him, breaks a new heart every day. He's a tramp, they adore him. And I only hope he'll stay that way. He's a tramp. He's a scoundrel.
2: That scene from the Disney animated classic Lady and the Tramp sets us up for our poll results this week as we were looking ahead to our top five movie pets on this week's show. We asked you last week who your favorite movie dog is. Your options were Lady and Tramp, Lassie, Marley from Marley and Me, Old Yeller, or Toto from The Wizard of Oz, one of my all-time favorite films.
3: Josh, how did it come out? Well, the most recent film fared the worst. Marley from Marley and Me received only 4%. Followed by Lassie with 10%, then Old Yeller with 16%, and even though they were a package deal, Lady and the Tramp came in second place with 30% because Toto from The Wizard of Oz won with 40% of the vote.
2: Greg wrote in with a comment, said, the fact that Toto is running away with this poll over a vastly superior Lassie makes my brain hurt. Baird wrote in to say, I'm not seeing much love for Old Yeller. Seriously, if Toto got zapped by the
3: witch, would you cry for the rest of the night, then cry with your children when they discover the movie? Fair
2: fair point. Matt Powers wrote in as well, said, what? No love for Benji? That was my dog of choice growing up. Ended up going with Lady and the Tramp, mostly because I can't stand Lassie. Never saw Old Yeller or Marley. And while Toto is a great dog, his movie is not called Toto. And so I think I have to give it to Lady and the Tramp for actually being the stars of their movie. Good point. A lot of nostalgia going on here. Yeah. And we did see a fair number of comments on Twitter, but also in the mailbag wondering where Benji was. And I think, unfortunately, this just shows a deficiency in our movie pet background, Josh, because not only have I never really paid attention to Lassie, and I, too, am guilty of never having seen Old Yeller, but Benji, I was aware of Benji growing up, but I was never someone who really watch those films same thing for me i think i've
3: probably seen all those but i can barely remember them they just didn't hit me like they seem to have hit
2: a lot of other people well we'll see if we can redeem ourselves anyway with our top five movie pets coming up this week's poll question which you can vote in over at filmspotting.net allows us to preview next week's show we're going to discuss ben affleck's new film which he stars in and also directs it's his third film as a director argo and we're curious which actor turned director is off to the best start. We're giving you three options. They're contemporaries. They've each made roughly the same number of films and are all active making films as directors right now. Josh, the options are? Ben
3: Affleck for Gone Baby Gone, The Town in Argo. George Clooney, who's made, of course, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Good Night and Good Luck, and The Ides of March. And then John Favreau with Maid,
2: Elf, and Iron Man. So I don't know where you're at with this one, Josh. Did you think about it before seeing Argo? Because we have both now seen right. the film Argo. We're not going to talk about it, though, until next week. Did that affect how you would vote at all, though? It might have, but uh, actually it didn't end up. I'm sticking
3: with my original choice, which was Clooney. Really? Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is clearly my favorite film of that whole bunch. And the way I looked at this is I just asked myself, Of these three filmmakers, if I knew a movie was coming out from them, which one would I be more anticipating Mm -hmm. their
2: work? And it's Clooney. Yeah, I asked myself the same question earlier today before seeing Argo, and my vote was Ben Affleck. Even though I had some mixed reaction to both Gone Baby Gone and The Town, there was enough there. There were enough elements that I really responded to that proved to me he is a director who knows what he's doing and who I think is going to continue to make some really good films. I went with him over Clooney because I like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, but I respected more than really loved Good Night and Good Luck, and I thought The Ides of March was kind of a dog, unfortunately. And so. I actually haven't even seen The Ides <laughs> of March, so I'm voting for him. Despite having seen that one, maybe that would change my Well, life. I'm curious to see how many people may give John Favreau some love. I am a big fan of the movie Iron Man, and I'll just choose to overlook Iron Man 2. Maybe some of our listeners will as well. We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. <laughs>
3: That's a clip from Frank and Weenie, which is director Tim Burton's return, not only to stop motion animation, but to an early short film of his, I think about 1984. And I've seen that short film, really liked it and was anticipating Frank and Weenie as hopefully some sort of nostalgic return to form. I actually ended up liking it quite a bit more than hmm. that. This is just a gorgeous piece of stop motion animation. I love the use of black and white here, which we don't get nearly enough of. Burton uses it so well to add depth and texture. I was fortunate enough, the screening, I only had one slot to see this, and it wasn't the 3D screening. I lucked out. Yes. So so I saw this just a regular print that looked absolutely beautiful. This movie surprised me, though, more a day or two after I had seen it. The story, the basic story, is shown in the trailer pretty Mm -hmm. much, that it's a Frankenstein twist, a lonely boy who's close to his pet dog, the dog dies, and this is an inventive kid, a creative kid, so he creates an experiment to bring his dog back to life. Kind of Frankenstein meets Pet Cemetery. A little bit, a little bit. And it was fun in the way Burton's movies usually are fun with these sort of ghoulish ideas, but this also struck me a day or two later, like I said, as one of his saddest films. And I know that all of his films have that melancholy going underneath, but for some reason, uh, the fun that he has with it supersedes that in our minds and we tend to push that other stuff aside here it really stuck with me maybe it's just because it is such a visceral sad story of losing your pet but there's a sequence in there that is among one of the most moving things i've seen in his films which is this close up shot of victor the boy of just his face and this is after the dog has died not long after that And the backgrounds transition. It's a montage. So we see him, I think, first in bed, just looking. It's this dead stare of depression. That's what it is. And the background changes. So next we see him, I think, at the breakfast table or in the car or in the classroom. And it's just bringing us through his day. The face remains the same. And it really struck me that depression is this underlying role in so many of his stories. Maybe for a lot of people that's clear, you know, and they're like, duh. But for me, I kind of would always say, oh yeah, that's a depressed character, but look how cool all this stuff Uh is. And it kind of, I kind of glossed over it. Frank and Weenie had really hit home, and that one scene was just a beautiful way of doing that. So... I guess I just hope that people don't push this aside as something that, especially with Dark Shadows opening this year and thinking, oh, well, that's the real Tim Burton film. And this is just something, you know, he handed off to some animators. I'm sure there were people who did a ton of work for him
2: on this. But this is a really important work of his, I think, especially hmm. when you look over his career. It's true. The Dark Shadows is totally forgettable. So I'm really glad to hear that Frank and Weenie seems to be a return to form in terms of themes, but also quality. And when you talk yeah. about these depressed characters, I immediately went to Winona Ryder in Beetlejuice. I could picture her face right away.
3: And you know what's interesting about that? Winona Ryder has a supporting vocal performance Hmm. here, which I thought as the movie was going on that sounded and it's such a good performance because it fits the character perfectly and I thought it reminded me of that character as well. And sure enough, I looked up afterwards and it was Winona Ryder. There's some really good vocal work here as well.
2: Well, Frank Frankenweenie is Josh's recommendation for a movie currently playing in theaters that we're not going to get a chance probably to do a full review of. I've also got one that I want to mention that I caught up with on cable on demand this past weekend. It's a movie that I believe is still playing in some select cities. It opened a few weeks ago, but again, I caught it on demand. And it's a documentary called How to Survive a Plague. It's the story of... ACT UP and a later splinter group called TAG and the impact they had in fighting the AIDS epidemic in the mid 80s on up to the mid 90s. It basically starts with the onset of the disease and takes you up to the point where finally the medical community came up with the right combination of drugs to administer to HIV patients so that having AIDS was no longer a death sentence. That's really the culmination of the film. And you become so attached to many of the characters on screen, some who do survive. The epidemic, some who don't. It's a very sad tale often at times, but a very inspiring one as well. You meet some fascinating characters, and what really surprised me the most was, first of all, how little I knew about how this battle was waged. It turns out that these groups really played a key role in finding the right cure and in spurring on the medical community and the scientists. I just took for granted that eventually a bunch of scientists in labs put this stuff together, but really it was members of these groups who were not necessarily medical professionals, but who recognized that the only way a change was gonna happen, the only way they were gonna be able to fight this and try to stop everyone they know from dying was to educate themselves and basically become scientists themselves. So that was fascinating for me as well. It was interesting to see how the documentary is mostly constructed from footage from the time. There are talking head interviews now with many of the people who were part of these groups, but there seemed to be a lot of cameras rolling at a lot of these meetings back in the 80s and 90s, obviously video cameras, and they're able to construct this narrative and tell the entire story of the AIDS epidemic in America and how these groups fought against it through the construction of that footage. So it's a really interesting documentary, How to Survive a Plague. Sounds like almost a story about activism as That's much as what the it
3: medical is. procedures and developments and
2: discoveries. Yeah, okay. that was one of the things I definitely did take away from it was just seeing how they chose to fight this war. They were really fighting for survival is mm-hmm. the way they saw it and they saw it as a plague wiping out their community even as the rest of America was really turning Ignore a blind it, eye yeah. to it yeah so activism really is a key part of the film I shall leave you as you left me
0: as you left her my for all eternity in the center of a dead planet buried alive buried
2: alive <laughs> A couple of quick notes we wanted to mention as well. Film spotting, streaming, video unit... Our sister podcast, Film Spotting SVU, with Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore, it comes out every two weeks. They've got a new show that just posted where they discuss the listener's choice review of *The Wrath of Khan* <laughs> (Star Trek II) and also shared some picks they had for superior sequels that are available via streaming. That's always an interesting topic. They also looked at this movie available on cable on demand called *Hotel Noir* and talked to the director of that film, Sebastian Gutierrez. So, if you haven't subscribed yet to get Film Spotting SVU, I don't know what you're waiting for. Check it out. It's a great show. Again, it comes out every two weeks. You can subscribe in iTunes. Just do a search for Film Spotting SVU or learn more at FilmSpottingSVU.com. Now, do you hold with everyone else that Wrath of Khan is clearly the best Star Trek film? Wow, you're putting me on the spot. See, I'm a fan of the pretentious Star Trek The Motion Picture. I've always been a fan of that film, but I probably haven't seen it since I was 13. So, I don't know. The Wrath of Khan is a movie I watched... 10 or 12 times. So based really? on that alone, when I was a kid, I watched that movie constantly. <sighs> so just based on its rewatchability, probably The Wrath of Khan is the better film. Easy answer for me because they're just about all bad they are just about all bad but i even kind of like number 3 the search for spock really i went through a star trek phase apparently well let's move on from that to our bonus content this is extra bits of audio that you can get if you are a film spotting app subscriber you can learn more about our apps at filmspotting.net click on apps there or do a search in itunes or amazon's android market If you want to know the answers to these questions, where was Repo Man, where was Falling Down on our list of top five Los Angeles movies a few weeks ago, the answers to those questions are available in our bonus content. And speaking of those L.A. movies, Josh, your number one collateral, some people are going to come to your defense. I like that. They're going to harangue me for not properly appreciating that Michael Mann film. So you won't want to miss that. Again, you can learn more about our apps at filmspotting.net.
0: than Bond, cooler than Bullet. Rated R. If you want to see Shaft, ask your mom.
2: The sounds of Isaac Hayes there from Gordon Park's seminal black exploitation film Shaft, starring Richard Roundtree. This is the film that's going to kick off our Black Exploitation marathon. Next week on the show, it's coming. So if you haven't got your Netflix queue ready yet, you have a little bit of time, but we are going to dive into it next week here on the show. The full list of films. We're going to give to you here in a moment, but they're also available at filmspotting.net if you click on the Marathons page. And this is a marathon, Josh, that has been a long time coming in trying to assemble the list of films we ultimately decided on. I was going back through some Film Spotting email mm-hmm. correspondence. I actually found an email discussing the marathon, the upcoming marathon, with our producer, Sam Van Halgren, then co-host from May 2007. So that's pretty early on, then, yeah, right? this is actually a marathon five years in the making. <laughs> We've been oh, wow. talking about it. Pressure. We're just now finally getting to it. We want to thank all of our listeners who send in their suggestions, very learned listeners who are probably going to have way too high expectations for what they're going to get from this marathon coming from us. Because the reason we're doing this marathon is this is basically a brand new genre to us. You've seen a few films. I've seen most of Shaft, but I think that's about it.
3: Yeah, I have had a very weird relationship with black exploitation, and Chicago area listeners might be able to relate to this. I want to say WGN, Channel 9, used to show some of these titles. I bet. On television, obviously they had to be very much edited, but I have vague memories of things like Shaft. One I remember very well is Blackula. That was an early one for me and other titles like that. So that was my introduction early on. And then I think, you know, around college time, I did see Sweet Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song more as like an academic exercise Mm -hmm. (laughs) at that
2: point. So I'm looking forward to checking some of these out. Well, as I said, our listeners gave us some good ideas here. We also sought some expert advice from a critic named Odie Henderson. He is at odinator on twitter if you want to follow him and he vetted our final list and gave us some ideas and we actually did take his recommendations and make a couple tweaks to our list so josh without further ado do you want to list the six films that are going to comprise our exploitation marathon we're starting with shaft then superfly coffee black caesar cooley high and we'll finish off with Ganja and Hess. I'm guessing Cooley High may be one of those films that WGN probably yeah. showed as it's set in Chicago. Yeah, that might have been it. And was probably TV-friendly, certainly more TV-friendly than some of these other films. But those are the six films that are going to make up the marathon. We kind of like the layout of the list because you get to cover some of the different sub-genres of exploitation. You've got the horror element in Ganja and Hess. You've got a film that isn't crime-related at all in Cooley High. Coffee, obviously, starring Pam Greer, gives us the badass heroine. And then you got to have Shaft and Superfly on the list. So, those are our six films. Again, the whole list is available at filmspotting.net when you click on marathons. And hopefully, a lot of people will follow along. This is a marathon coming on the heels of our Brassam Marathon and our contemporary Iranian cinema, where a lot of the movies were hard to get. Yeah. You had to really be creative, go to your local library, or do whatever you could to find them. All six of these films are available via Netflix, and Superfly is actually available via Netflix Instance. So my best recommendation if you're looking to find these films is to go to a great resource that I reference all the time called Can I Stream It? It's canistream.it. You type in the film's title, and it tells you all the different ways you can see it, whether it's rental, buying it, streaming, whatever it gives you that full list. So canistream.it really is a good resource that should come in handy with this marathon and future marathons. Josh, I'm looking forward to it next week. Can't wait. Hope you'll tune in. Lassie, go home. Will the beloved pooch find a
3: place on our list of the best screen pets? What happens if it's Lassie who's stuck down the well? Oh, don't even take it. That may there. happen. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Oh.
2: to our thank yous now, and we start by saying thank you to our longtime partner, Jeff Goldsmith. He's the host of the Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith. He, of course, is also the producer of the Backstory iPad app, so if you're a screenwriter or aspiring screenwriter, both of these are must-haves. And speaking of Ryan Johnson, he recently did a long interview with Ryan Johnson about his film Looper, so if you're all things Looper, you do need to check out the Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith. You can find it in iTunes if you just do a search. That brings us To our donations this week, we start with three $5 a month donors, Tara in Chicago and Wayne in Los Angeles.
3: I've been a listener ever since your Cloverfield review five years ago. I've been truly impressed by each episode from that point on. I'm a huge fan of film. The thoughtful review and discussions, Massacre Theater, the Top Fives, the marathons, etc. are truly special. You got me to subscribe after the Sacred Cow review of Raiders of the Lost
2: Ark and the forthcoming exploitation Marathon. You guys are great. Keep doing what you do. Very sweet. Thank you very much, Wayne. We appreciate the kind words and the donation. We also got a new $5 a month subscription from Doug in Tacoma, Washington.
3: It's been a long time coming, but I'm now a $5 a month donor, and I wanted to tell you why. I've been listening to the show since it started, and I've re-listened to so many shows, I stopped counting them. At this point, you guys commute with me to work almost every day, given the ample supply of new shows, SVU, bonus content, and, of course, reruns. Ever since your sight and sound shows, I've decided to watch the entire sight and sound top 50, but that wasn't enough. I drew up a spreadsheet with the top 50, plus all of your favorites from your sight and sound shows, the top 20 of AFI's list, and even included the top 20 of Empire's top 500 list and Roger Ebert's 2002 sight and sound picks. I started this marathon with Alhazard Balthazar and Rashomon, and I'm relying on the film spotting app to help me appreciate what I'm watching even more. Being able to search for Rashomon and re-listen to the review from 2009 all on the app was amazing.
2: I have to confess that it wasn't until I read Doug's note that I realized that you could do a search in the film spotting app and find those reviews (laughs) so i learned something from doug's note he goes on to say i'm neither team adam nor team josh not team maddie team sam or even team michael i say pick a side doug get (laughs) off the fence he says i'm team film spotting god bless you guys and many thanks for the continuing conversation p.s i've attached a copy of the spreadsheet if you want to see how deep the rabbit hole goes so (laughs) i didn't have a chance to click on that yet but i'm going to email doug back and if he doesn't have a problem with us sharing that with Everybody listening will put that as well as a challenge as a challenge. challenge, Yeah, give yourself some films that should occupy you for the next 10 years or so. A couple other quick notes we did want to get out there. Several listeners have sent us a link or tweeted us, Josh, about the fact that Ryan Johnson, friend of the show and the writer director of the film Looper, has recorded a commentary track that you can download onto your iPod and actually go sit in the theater so this is a pre-DVD commentary basically you can sit in the theater and watch Looper with Ryan Johnson in your ear talking about the film he did it with The Brothers Bloom as well I never took advantage of that unfortunately maybe at some point I'll be able to sit down and do it but that's something that would be a lot of fun to do with Looper and we'll link to that download in our show notes as well cool idea but do it the second time you see the film I'd say you gotta keep up with it the first time you don't wanna have (laughs) Ryan talking to you about the film the first time you gotta give it Go without ryan's help but then i think it would be really interesting to hear him maybe fill in some blanks and add some context to the film that second time around we also wanted to mention that our appearance on the late live show this is a local comedy show that we were invited on for a 15 minute segment a couple saturdays ago we had a nice film spotting meetup with some chicago listeners before that they did decide josh that our segment was apparently worthy of being put on youtube Oh, it had to make a cut. I didn't realize Well, I don't know if they put every segment on YouTube. Maybe they <laughs> We were do. so
3: good we made it to YouTube. That's how
2: I'm wow. choosing to look at it. I'm choosing to look at it as they decided we were so good as guests on their show that they had to put it out there for the world to see. And there's been some good responses to it so far. At least a couple hundred people last time I looked have watched it so far on YouTube. I think it's up to three or four hundred. Not bad. I'll take it. No, we'll take it. But it was a really fun night, and if you did want to see how that segment turned out, We will put that as well in our show notes. We close, Josh, with one final thank you. You do the honors. From Leslie in West Sacramento, California. Thank you so much, Leslie, and everyone else who donated this week. You really do keep us doing what we're doing.
0: Hi, this is John C. Riley, and you're listening to Film Spotting.
2: What's this one's name? Well, not Wanda anyway.
0: Uh, I'm going to call her lunch. Hello, lunch. Hello.
2: Ew. Avoid the green ones. They're not ripe yet. (laughs) You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar, and that's one of my all-time favorite scenes in one of my all-time favorite comedies from A Fish Called Wanda. And in honor of that scene in that film, Josh, this is going to be my memorial list called Wanda. It is. My top five movie pets. Can't wait to get yours as well. I know from our producer, Sam, that we do have five different films here, no overlap at all. So we should have ten hopefully interesting picks here. We will note that Toto from The Wizard of Oz, that film is in the film-spotting pantheon. Those movies are ineligible because we love them so much. They'd come up too often, probably here on the show, if they were eligible. So that one is put aside. I'm also going to throw out the rule right off the top that Chewbacca is not a pet. Really? Even if Chewbacca a lot was, of people a pet, suggested that to me. I know, and they're crazy. And frankly, <laughs> I'd agree. it's offensive. I agree. It it's is, offensive. Yeah. Star Wars also in the pantheon, though, so ineligible anyway. But that really does hurt. That hurts me somehow to think that Chewbacca is just Han Solo's pet. Come Clearly, on. they don't know. Star Wars, if that's what they're saying. I agree with or you that. Or they hate Star Wars, even worse. They may. Josh, how did you form your list? Did you have any rules at all, or is this one of the more straightforward top fives we've ever done? It was pretty straightforward for me. I did have to put two
3: films, though, right away okay. in the penalty box, yeah. because I've mentioned them so often already on the show. Alhazard Balthazar, The Donkey would have applied here. I would have picked it, but I've mentioned
2: the donkey. It's come up quite, quite a bit. <laughs> bit. I'm impressed though, Josh, because I thought you might try to sneak it in one last time. Maybe is no. a number one, but you have of things yourself. to say about the donkey. Okay. Fair enough.
3: <laughs> back to the future, Einstein could have put in there, but back to the future again has appeared multiple times. Well, so. Einstein for me, just an honorable mention. Oh, okay. So. All right. Both of those are aside. So let's get to number five, three simple rules, Adam. Never expose it to bright light. Never get it wet and never, ever feed it after midnight. I'm talking, of course, about Gizmo. Billy in Gremlins does not listen to those rules, so cute little Gizmo turns into the scaly, drooling, maniacal creatures that we've really all come to love. When you think about Gremlins, it makes the 80s seem not so bad that a blockbuster film, that this could be a blockbuster film. You know, so often we talk about Hollywood taking over the 80s and just putting out so much junk, but Gremlins was one of those. And it's this wonderful satire. Joe Dante takes the holiday setting here and turns it into a horror comedy, which is really an early attack on commercialized Christmas. That's only been amplified and become more and more of a thing with each passing year. And here in 1984, there's a great satire of it already. The gremlins, of course, are more fun, but I don't think I could argue that they're pets here. They're kind of by pets, they're byproduct pets <laughs> of Gizmo. So yeah. I'm going I'm to stick with Gizmo. And he, really, he's the hero anyway. Think about very early on, he refuses to eat. After Midnight. He's very virtuous, Gizmo is. And then he's the one
2: who shines the light on Stripe at the end in order to bring an end to all the madness. I was 9 or 10 when that film came out. I remember seeing it in the theater. I loved it. And everybody I know wanted to own a Gizmo. We also thought it would be cool to have a Stripe when you wanted to bust that out yep, but, yep. but gizmo was definitely a pet i know we all wanted to own
3: isn't that another irony of the film too though
2: that this satire of commercialism became this huge i want to buy product. one right, mommy right. and daddy buy me one i just love that <laughs> it's a great pick my number five is maybe a little bit of a small stretch in that for most of the film this cat is never actually in the possession of its owners the cat is Papa from the Miranda July film that came out last year, The Future. That inevitability, though, the process of waiting for the cat to come home, and all of the responsibility and angst that comes with that is the entire film, though. This is July's follow-up to me and you and everyone we know. She plays Sophie. She lives with her boyfriend, Jason, and they're trying to accept adulthood. They know they're not ready for a kid, so they decide to get a cat, and they pick out this cat that's injured. And it can't come back with them for 30 days. It needs to recover. So they've got a month, and they view that 30 days as their last month of freedom, basically. And they decide to completely rethink everything they're doing and try to make the time count for something. Papa also gets a spot on this list because I'm going to guess, I could be wrong, but I'm going to guess it's the only pet on either of our lists that talks.
1: Dear Persons. I am writing this to you letter with no pencil. So I hope that you are able to read it. By day, I know I am yours. But when night comes, I am alone. And always have been. And always will be while. So it is only the sun that returns the wonderful feeling of being petted in. Please come soon. Nights are getting longer. Yours, Papa.
2: Only in a Miranda July film will you find a cat who talks and writes, though not with a pencil, just with its paw. It's a really nutty film, as you can tell from that scene, but I think in very good ways. And you actually kind of hope that this poor cat, who so desperately needs a home, doesn't end up going home with them, because there's almost no way that they're ever going to be unselfish enough to properly care for. That's really what the whole film's about. I love Papa. I love that voice. Definitely one of the first animals that popped into my head when I thought of this topic.
3: Now, I haven't seen the future. Does Papa have a lot of scenes, or only a couple? Or? No, Papa gets a major role Pawpaw. in this film. Oh, okay. Yeah, All you right. can't deny the role that Papa plays. I'll have to Check that out. My number four is the dance hall dog in The Gold Rush. A dog features in a lot of Chaplin films. The Champion*, City Lights, Modern Times also all have dogs. And a dog is essentially the star of his 1918 short, A Dog's Life. Now, the pets here, they're not really pets often in Chaplin's films as much as companions. They're almost equals, and I kind of like that about his films. Somehow having a silent companion with him accentuates the pathos of his comedy, and they become twin souls. They're both outside of society in a way. Now, I didn't want to break any rules by picking a short film, so I did set A Dog's Life aside, and I picked 1925's The Gold Rush for this dance hall scene. I love how it emphasizes the Tramp's loneliness and his need for companionship. As he walks in, everyone pairs off to dance, and Georgia, the saloon girl, literally looks through him twice, like he's not even there. He finally does get a chance to dance with her, but his pants keep falling down, so he grabs a rope that's laying on a table without realizing that it's attached to someone's dog. Turns out it's a big dog, one of the many slight and very funny gags as this dog comes out from under the table. And it's huge. So the dog's as confused as Chaplin. They become partners in this awkward dance. Eventually, the dog pulls Chaplin over, drags him across the floor. I also really appreciate the tiny detail of the wagging tail because Hmm. it's kind of like the dog has that same playfulness amidst all this chaos that Chaplin does.
2: Well, we'll go from one screen genius to another. Bark twice if you're in Milwaukee. Will Ferrell's my comedic <laughs> genius. And the dog is, of course, Baxter from Anchorman, nice. the legend of Ron Burgundy. I love as well that you mentioned the loneliness and the need for companionship of the Tramp because really, despite Ron Burgundy being a character who should be on top of the world, seems to have so many friends and everyone looks up to him, the fact is one of the things that really comes through in Anchorman is how lonely he is. And the fact that Baxter really is his closest friend and confidant who happens to also get kicked off a bridge by Jack Black.
3: That's my chopper you just thrashed bros of. Easy, compadre.
0: I'm your friend out here, all right? I want you to fix my chopper before I stomp your goopy ass. If you want to throw down and fisticuffs, fine. I've got Jack Johnson and Tom O'Leary waiting for you, right here. You destroyed the only thing I love. All right, there it is. What do you love? I love poetry. And a
1: glass of scotch. And, of course... My friend Baxter
0: here. Well, guess what? Now this is happening. Excuse
3: me. Excuse me. What are you doing? That's how I roll.
0: Baxter. Huh? No!
2: Burritos are often delicious, but filling. That scene just (laughs) kills me. He's kicked off the bridge, he's feared dead. But, of course, this is how great Baxter is. He comes back. He survives getting kicked off the bridge and comes back to have a conversation with an angry bear and convince it not to attack. Fairly well, Baxter. You will always be a friend of the bears. Baxter is my number four. Oh, Baxter.
3: Well, the reason I got kind of upset about Chewbacca early on is because I am a bit of a Star Wars fanatic. So I'm going to test you here, Adam. What was the name of the beast that Jabba the Hut feeds prisoners to in Return of the Jedi.
2: Wow, you're going to make me just lose all my Star Wars street cred. Yeah. Just put me on the spot. I can't, you can't? tell you. You The Rancor. Mm, never I'm... would have come up with it. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's not there,
3: right? It's not. You might want to feel good about that, actually. Well, StarWars.com describes the Rancor this way. A towering hulk of muscle and reptilian flesh. Also, in case you wanted to know, it's identified as male. And it's classified, they give all these creatures affiliations on this site as a criminal. So I'm glad we cleared that up. Right. (laughs) You were wondering, is it a pet? That's the question for tonight, though. And yes, it has a keeper, it has guards, even though it ends up eating one of them. And it's even kept in a cage. So remember the drool, the beady eyes, you've got to love this thing. I had one of these toys as a kid, which may explain my pick. It was actually one of the better Star Wars toys, if you remember. You could open its jaws and kind of slip one of your poor action figures in there so it (laughs) looks like they're dangling from his mouth. So Rancor had to be on my list. Well, I
2: love it, though. As I said, Star Wars is technically in the pantheon. Not Return of the Jedi. That's true. Good point. You caught me. You caught me trying to catch you. Adam, did you know there were three films
3: <laughs> another test a, of your Star Wars credentials? A trilogy? <laughs> a
2: no. long time ago. Okay, long time ago. You are correct. It's a very good pick. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're sharing our top five movie pets, tying in with our interview earlier in the show with Martin McDonough about his new film, Seven Psychopaths. The Shih Tzu Bonnie is a key player in Seven Psychopaths. And it's funny that we're talking about Great movies, action movies like Return of the Jedi, and we're talking about these comedies like Anchorman and The Gold Rush, but of course, pet movies, as anyone who has seen Old Yeller certainly knows, pet movies can be very sad and very depressing. There's almost nothing more depressing than watching an owner have to say goodbye to a pet or having a pet lose an owner, and that certainly is the case with my number three. It's Lucy the Dog from Wendy and Lucy, the Kelly Reichert film. I don't know what to say about Lucy other than she just seems to be such a sweet dog. And there's a scene in the film, I don't want to give anything about the film away. It's a film that really doesn't have a lot of plot. Michelle Williams plays a kind of down-and-out character who's traveling through the western part of the United States. She's in Oregon. She's trying to get to Alaska where she's going to find a job, she thinks, and hopefully make some money. She's got basically nothing. She just has her dog in this beat-up old car. And she's out of money. She needs dog food. She goes into this grocery store and let's just say things kind of go downhill. Well, they go really downhill from there, but there's just this heartbreaking shot that Reichert gives us where Wendy is about to walk out the doors of this supermarket and you see Lucy just out there tied up waiting for her so patiently and there's just this connection there where you know she's so close to getting back to her dog and yet at the same time so far away it just breaks my heart i don't want to say a whole lot more but i do definitely recommend not only wendy and lucy but that entire oregon trilogy as i think some refer to it from kelly reichert wendy and lucy old joy was the first film and then more recently of course meek's cutoff so lucy though Had to get some recognition. I could not leave her off. Poor Lucy, it's such a sad film. I had to give her a home on my list. Good pick. It was an honorable mention for me. I went with something a little bit funnier, though,
3: at number two. It's Gromit from Wallace and Gromit The Curse of the Were Rabbit. Let's be honest, though, Wallace, the human half of this duo, is really the pet here, which is what's so endearing and amusing about the Aardman Animation Claymation series. If you haven't seen any of these, the shorts or this, their feature debut, Wallace is a scatterbrained English inventor who's frequently saved from his own inventions by Gromit, who's his logical, reasonable, deadpan dog. The stakes are raised considerably in curse of the were-rabbit because one of Wallace's inventions results in this giant semi-intelligent rabbit that begins terrorizing the village's vegetable gardens. This is a wonderful combination of the Ardman aesthetic and then familiar stories like Frankenstein, the Wolfman, even Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. In the end, it is Gromit who saves the day, though I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it because this being October, Halloween coming up,
2: the perfect time to sit down and watch this movie. That's a movie I completely forgot about, even though it was reviewed here on the show when it came out back in 2006 or 7 It's been a while, but it is a film I do think is worth seeing. Good pick. My number two is the beloved pet of Nick and Nora Charles, the sophisticated detectives from The Thin Man, the series of films based on the Dashiell Hammett stories. This is a pet, Asta, their dog, who helps them occasionally find clues, sometimes comes across a body or two. It helps get them out of jams. And I use the word sophisticated. The thing I love about Asta is that she seems to be a real representation of Nick and Nora themselves. She seems to be as sophisticated and special and smart and fun to be around as they are. I just think she is a superior dog just as they seem to be a superior couple. They're kind of the married couple all of us look to and want to be on some level. They love each other, they have this great repartee, and of course they get to go out and solve crimes. What would be more fun than that?
0: I'm afraid we shall take the dog out. Oh, it's all right, Joe. It's all right, it's my dog and uh, uh, my wife. Well, you might have mentioned me first on the billing. The dog's well trained. He'll behave himself. It might bite some bone. No, oh, he's all right. Look, lie down. Lie down.
1: Stand up.
2: <laughs> I was doing some research on Asta today, Josh, and it turns out in the Hammett books, Asta is a female schnauzer, but in the movie, a male wire-haired fox terrier that was named Skippy. But after The Thin Man and the success of The Thin Man, they actually changed the dog's name to Asta, which is how Asta is credited in The Thin Man sequels. And Asta went on to appear in dozens of films, including two other classic screwball comedies, The Awful Truth and Bringing Up Baby. Nice. That's not bad at all. You know a pet has captured audiences' imaginations when sales in that type of dog jump up after the film. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened because of the success of The Thin Man. All of a sudden sales spiked in Terriers because of Asta. So had to be on my list. I heard it all went to Asta's head, though, and you just couldn't <laughs> deal with the dog after oh, a while. Such a diva. Yeah. Such a diva Asta was. That brings us to our number one movie pet.
3: My number one is The Black from 1979's The Black Stallion. I really think this is one of the great children's films adapted from the 1941 Walter Farley novel. And it's done by E.T. scribe Melissa Matheson and Fly Away Home director Carol Ballard. Tells the story of a boy and a horse who are shipwrecked together on an island after the steamer they were traveling on sinks. The first half of the film, the entire first half of the film is set on this island. And it's just magical as the boy tries to earn the trust of the horse. It almost feels like pure silent cinema. And it has one of the most beloved movie images to my mind. It's when the boy, he's just scrawny silhouette, convinces the majestic horse to take food from him. They're both in silhouette, kind of against the shimmering sea as the background. And their tentative gestures take the form of this beautiful dance. inevitably loses a little bit when they are rescued. And back home, the boy fights to keep the horse as his own. But still, overall, it's a treasure. I mean, for all the animation renaissance we've had with the likes of Pixar and Miyazaki films in recent years, it would be nice to get a live action family film that's also just as artful something like this.
2: Well, I'm nodding my head as if I know what you're talking about, but for whatever reason, The Black Stallion never captured my imagination as a kid. You did see it as a kid, just I didn't do I think I saw it, it huh? but I never rewatched it. Okay. For whatever reason, it wasn't one of those films that really spoke to me. Maybe I just don't like horses, Josh.
3: Well, you do have what? Two dogs, three dogs now on your no, list and only one cat?
2: That's true. That's true. I do have mostly dogs and one cat, and I'm going to close with another dog as we get to my number one. It is the dog Flike from the Italian neorealist film Umberto D. This is a Vittorio De Sica film. He, of course, made The Bicycle Thief. This was his second film after The Bicycle Thief came out about four years later. And this is a movie basically about an old man. He's a pensioner has very little to live on, has a place he's been in for a long time, and he has some debts that rack up, and his landlady wants him out, and she's not going to accept any money except full payment. He has to have it by a certain deadline, or he's going to be out on his feet, and he really cannot scrape up the money. His dog, Flike, is... Again, his only companion. He is always by his side, and there's actually a scene where he's going to check himself into a hospital. He does have a fever. He comes down with tonsillitis, but he needs a place to stay, so he's going to check into the hospital. Like a lot of poor people we see in the movie, there's a lot of poor men in his place who are basically just trying to stay at the hospital because they have nowhere else to go. And he has to distract Flike. He has to have one of the people from the hospital try to distract the dog because he knows if the dog sees him go, it will be this big scene, and he'll never get out the door. And there's also a scene where he resorts to begging on the street, but he can't bring himself to do it himself. There's something about the indignity of it. So he gets Flike, his dog, to do it for him. The dog actually sits there with the hat in his mouth on the street corner as people go by waiting to collect some change. But I think that one of the things that I love about this film, Josh, is the way DeSica says so much with the camera and sound. And I want to just give you one scene in particular that I think sums up this relationship so well. He's at his lowest point, and he hears a trolley, like a train, go by right outside his door, and he sees the cement. And there's a moment where DeSica kind of gives you this close-up of the cement and then cuts back, and we get this camera that tracks in kind of suddenly on Carlo Battisti's face, the great non-professional actor who plays Umberto. He's so good here. And you just get that moment of recognition without any words at all that you know he's contemplating, well, what else do I have to do but kill myself? I could probably even do it right here, or maybe he's going to go put himself in front of a train as it speeds by. Whatever it's going to be, he realizes that may be his only way out, except he turns and he looks to the bed and he sees Flyke laying there on the bed. And he realizes that if he kills himself, no one will be there to take care of his dog. That really is his only reason to live. And the last 20 minutes of this film are so gut-wrenching and they're so suspenseful because you realize that his fate is tied to his dog's fate. And it really gets messy and there are some complex dynamics in their relationship in the last 20 minutes or so. So definitely Umberto D is a movie that's not going to probably uplift you. It's not intended to uplift you like most neorealist films, but an amazing relationship between a man and his dog, certainly evident there in Umberto D. That brings us to our honorable mentions. Who were some of the dogs or cats or other pets that you overlooked, Josh? Yeah,
3: I did get a lot of family pressure with this list, as you might imagine. My first grader really wanted me to mention Poppy in the Beverly Hills Chihuahua series. I don't know <laughs> if you're familiar with this.
2: You now, could have just lied to your daughter. Straight
3: to DVD. <laughs> you could have lied to your daughter and told her that you mentioned it. <laughs> well, my fifth grader wisely said, Dad, don't do that. You'll lose your reputation. So I don't know where this <laughs> falls in. A couple others I wanted to mention. Babe the Pig, of course, you know I love that film. Just mentioned it recently as Top 5 Dance Scenes. Zero, the ghost dog in Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas ties in nicely with Sparky from Frank and Weenie this week. And then I got this suggestion, which I just love from at TriangleManNC on Twitter,
2: Fay Ray and King Kong. <laughs> As a pet. I saw that one. You're right. I think <laughs> it one. does work well for me and honorable mentions. You mentioned two of them. Einstein from Back to the Future in your penalty box. Gizmo from Gremlins was definitely one I considered. The other three that I like a lot, Elliot from Pete's Dragon. The dragon. Oh, yeah. Yes. From that Disney movie. Jack the dog. We all know him as Ugly from The Artist. Had to at least consider as an honorable mention. And finally, a very good DreamWorks animated film, How to Train Your Dragon, the yeah, dragon as a pet is a very good would be movie, toothless. Yeah. So those were my honorable mentions. And Josh, maybe we should just come clean and try to build up some credibility here. What pets do you have at your house? I know you have a dog.
3: We're a dog family. Yeah. Okay. We had uh, a miniature schnauzer actually for a long time that died about a year and a half ago, which is maybe why Frank and Weenie, you know, just hit me so hard. I guess. And now we've got a soft coat of Wheaton Terrier, about a year and a half old. We're We're all adjusting to her. Okay. Is
2: that the only pet you have?
3: Yeah. 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 Well, I think we have some random small frogs in a bowl
2: somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) They don't have names yet. Well, we are a dog family as well. Her name is Ellie. We named her after the Beatles. Eleanor Rigby is her full name, but we do call her Ellie. And we also do have a tortoise at home. Sophie's last birthday. She wanted a tortoise. So of course we have this turtle. Actually, no, it's not a turtle. It's a tortoise. They're different, Josh. And we did go through a little bit of controversy with the name. Sophie had narrowed down the name to two options the first one was olive the second one was katniss oh my (laughs) obviously my daughter is a fan of the hunger games i had you went with i had to put my foot down i said katniss just doesn't work olive is a perfect name it's a sweet name for a female russian tortoise and she's green olive works perfect and she gave in named her olive
3: Why couldn't you just let her name the tortoise
2: Catmiss? I convinced her that that wasn't really a good choice. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) And I was right, Josh, so just butt out. Those are our top five movie pets. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net.
3: You can also leave us a voicemail, 206-203-2463, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at facebook.com
2: slash filmspotting. Out in wide release this weekend, Martin McDonough's film Seven Psychopaths, definitely one I recommend. A new horror film called Sinister. The new Kevin James comedy, Here Comes the Boom, and Atlas Shrugged Part 2. I'm sure I'm going to be the millionth person to make this bad joke, but... Isn't that really the perfect title for the reaction to this film at this point? I'm
3: kind of surprised it's getting a theatrical release, actually.
2: I am as well. And, of course, Argo, Ben Affleck's new film opening this weekend. We'll discuss it next week here on Film Spotting. Out in limited release, The House I Live In. This is a new documentary from Eugene Jarecki about the criminal justice system here in the United States. And we previewed it last week on the show. Got to mention that the Chicago International Film Festival started this past Thursday in full gear right now a lot of really good movies to see. Actually, we named our top 10 most anticipated movies, the five, and some honorable mentions. I've added five more to the list since then that I've come across that really intrigued me, so a lot to see. Yeah, and I've already seen one of those on our list, and it was really good. Next week here on the show, I mentioned that we'll talk about Argo. We will also discuss Shaft, the first film in our exploitation marathon, and we finally settled on a top five that goes nicely with Argo. Top five movies directed by their stars, Affleck, of course, the star and the director of Argo. So I think that should be a good list. We look forward to getting some of your recommendations. You can send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. I did want to note as well, Josh, that last week on the show, we plugged a discussion of Wuthering Heights, the new adaptation of that famous novel from Andrea Arnold, really interesting British filmmaker. It's out in New York and L.A., I believe, but it's actually been delayed. It's been pushed back here in Chicago to the end of November. So it's one we still hope to talk about, but we got to wait until it actually opens here in November. Film Spotting
3: is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths, and special thanks to Tori Melitia and Shauna Coyne at WBEZ. Our featured artist was Band of Horses. See, we went from Ray LaMontagne and the Pariah Dogs last week to another movie pet appropriate group. There you go. You can learn more at BandofHorses.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
1: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
2: Two, three, four. Backyard,
0: front yard, all the park. park. Play with, with it, Telly. It it hold
3: on
2: hold, gets on, hold on. Hold on. We're too loud. I knew that was going to oh happen. Oh my God, that was that was <laughs> I awful. Knew that was going to happen. So, are you deliberately trying to be off the beat? I'm on the beat. No, That's you're the not. Beat. <laughs> I'm going to have to play
3: the drums, too. <laughs> Do we need to pipe the music? We can't pipe the music no, into our headphones.
2: Um, backyard, That's fine backyard. if we're not on. <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to turn it down, though. So hold on. All right. Um, should I back up? Let's do it one more time. And then, yeah, we both need to step away. Okay. just When we sing. Pretty good. Like, okay. backyard. Like, if you do it like that, if you stand back like that. Okay. Let's do the whole scene again. If you though. know the beat so well, you can go like this for the next line. I will. <laughs>